last week, the nation prayed. It was the first time I witnessed widespread prayer across media outlets, television, the internet, and TV, all filled with calls to prayer since 9-11. Thankfully, the events that precipitated the call to prayer were not on the same scale at all. Much smaller, but nevertheless, still quite shaking. On Monday night, during the Monday night football broadcasts, DeMar Hamlin collapsed as if dead. And immediately, you had prayer everywhere. The Buffalo Bills team huddled around on the field, kneeling before God in prayer. You could find videos of fans in the stands praying the Lord's Prayer together. I even saw one media personality pray on television. When confronted with hardship and a difficult situation, the instinct to call out to one's maker to make all things well could not be suppressed. We come to Matthew in chapter 9 this morning, verses 27 through 34, and we find that same instinct to call out to the maker for mercy dramatized in the life of Christ. Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 34, and our main idea is this, cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. There's two major parts where we will see two blind men who see clearly and cry out to Jesus. And then there's a second part where we see that the Pharisees, though they have their physical sight, remain blind and reject Jesus, even crying out against him. With that in mind, let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we ask that you would fill our heads with holy words, our hearts with holy affections, our bellies with holy laughter, and our lives and this fellowship with holy joy. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is present with us even now and that your Spirit allows those who submit themselves to your word to hear better sermons than those which are preached. And so it is my prayer this morning that you would be at work in all of us as we listen to you speak through the pen of Matthew. Lord, we pray that you would help us to love you more. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. It is interesting. Jesus has been interrupted at a number of points throughout chapter 9, and each time he immediately turns to heal or to address the need that's being brought before him. And yet here, it appears as if he keeps walking. Did you notice that? Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And then verse 28 indicates that he didn't stop right away. When he had entered the house, they come to him. Whose house? We don't really know. It could be Jesus' own house. It could be Peter's house. He'd been at Peter's house before, right? It could even be Matthew, the tax collector's house, where he was eating with other sinners earlier in chapter 9. We don't know. But it is interesting that he waits until he gets there to address the needs of these two blind men. And so we ask the question, and I think rightly, why? There are two answers. 
The first one, which we'll double back to later, hopefully, if I remember, is to test the quality or the sort of place of the blind men's faith. The second reason we've actually seen already deals with what theologians call the messianic secret. Jesus wants to avoid any messianic misunderstandings about who he is and what he came to do. But we saw it already in verse 4 of chapter 8. If you remember back there, Jesus heals a leper and he says, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And we'll see here, after he heals these blind men, spoiler alert, he heals them, he says to them in verse 30, see that no one knows about it. Mum is the word. And so we go, why didn't he heal them right away? Right? And, and why is he telling them to shut up about it? And the answer is that Jesus is not after fame. He's going to perform this healing in the house outside of the public eye, in the same way that he raised the dead girl just prior inside of the house after chasing the crowds away. Jesus, from the very beginning, has not been about building his brand or growing his Instagram following. He has been calling disciples out of the crowds to follow him along the narrow way. He's been calling people to himself and to holiness. And to believe right doctrine about him, to believe the truth about who he is. What he is doing in bringing these men into the house to give them their sight and in telling the crowds to go away and in asking them to remain silent is trying to avoid misunderstanding that is tied to the messianic expectation in the first century. Those who had been waiting on the Messiah were waiting on the Messiah to come and to overthrow Rome, to conquer. Messiahs, they win. They ride on horses and carry swords. They're victorious. And Jesus is the Messiah. He is that sort of king, and he will come to throw off all the enemies of God's people, to make all things new. He will come to avenge all that has been done wrong against God. But the first time Jesus came, he came not to bring the judgment of God. He came not to overthrow all the hosts of evil fully and finally. He came rather to lay down his life for evil men and women. He came not as conquering Messiah, but as the Messiah who was to be crucified. Crucified Messiah is oxymoronic. It's a little bit like saying frozen steam. And so what he wants to do at this stage of his ministry is to have the opportunity to teach rightly about what he's come to do. Matthew even lays that out early on in his healings for us. Back in verse 17, he's healed the leper, he's healed the centurion's son with a word from a distance, he's healed Peter's mother-in-law and a host of others. And we read in verse 17 of chapter 8, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The idea is that Jesus is bringing the kingdom into earth. He's healing diseases by his power, yes. But specifically, he's healing diseases, spiritually speaking, by taking the sins of those he heals onto himself. Matthew's quoting from Isaiah 53 there, which says of the Messiah, this suffering servant, that he will be crushed for our iniquities, that we will be healed by his wounds, that God will crush him for the wrongdoing 
of his people. This is the kind of Messiah Jesus is. He's a suffering servant. He is king, but he's a servant king. He is king, but he's a crucified king. And he is a risen king. And so he wants time to teach about who he is and what he has come to do. He is the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep. He seeks not a crown of gold, but has set his mind and his heart on wearing the crown of thorns. He wants to avoid all of this fame because fame often confuses faith. He's worried, not worried, but but if, if this fame that the Messiah has arrived gets out and is super widespread, there's going to be a lot of misunderstanding about what exactly it is he's come to do. It's actually one of my favorite scenes uh, in Mark's gospel. Jesus comes in in the triumphal entry during Easter week. Uh, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. These palm branches are out. You can sort of feel this militaristic vibrance in the air. There's an electricity to it. And I just love the way Mark records it. Jesus goes into the temple and everybody's like, all right, this is our king. He's ready. We're going to overthrow the oppressor. And Mark says, and Jesus looked around and went home. It's sort of this anticlimactic entry into Jerusalem. And it sort of shows us what the expectation of the people were. And how how different that was from what Jesus actually came to do. He came to set his people free, yes. But not from the immediate oppression they were experiencing. Rather, from their ultimate oppression. Slavery to sin. He was not at that moment a political liberator, but the Lamb of God. And so when these blind men call out, Jesus keeps walking. And what an example these blind men give to us. It's not easy to follow someone when you are blind. I thought about that a lot this week. You know, sometimes you hear blind faith or don't blindly follow. And I actually go, it takes a lot of effort to blindly follow someone. Like calling after Jesus, trying to figure out where he is. And Jesus keeps walking. He's going to the house. And yet they follow. What an example for us. That when we are calling out to God for mercy, when we are praying for something to God, and he is not acting in the way we would expect or in the way we would want, that we can continue to trust him. That we can continue to follow him. Continue crying out to him. Why? Because we know who he is. That's what enabled these blind men to keep following him and to keep crying out. They weren't crying out to him because they had some superstition about who he was. They were crying out to him because they knew him as the son of David. They believed him to be the one who could really give them sight. They trusted him. And we do well to follow in their footsteps. Learn to walk by faith even when we can't see. Blind men follow Jesus because they know who he is. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Have you ever had to call customer service? A nightmare, right? You get those automated lists. For this department, press one. And for this, press two. Also, Did you know this information is available online and you can do X, Y, and Z and you're sitting there and you're going, yeah, I know, I tried. 
You think calling a real person was my first choice? Like I'm on the line with a stranger for a reason. It's infuriating. But every once in a while, once you cut through all of the sort of loops they have for you, you, you get to talk to a real person. Maybe. And if you're lucky, that real person will be able to fix the problem that you are having. And then, maybe a couple days go by, and someone asks you about your experience, and you say, yes, I called customer service, and I actually got through to somebody, and you know, they were great, my problem's fixed. And then someone asks you, what was that representative's name? And you go, um, I don't know, but fixed my problem. You see, Jesus has no interest in fixing people's problems while they forget him. He wants relationship. He wants to be known. That's why he, one of the reasons why he calls these blind men into conversation with himself. Very similar to the bleeding woman in the previous paragraph. She thinks she's just going to reach out and be healed. And Jesus turns to her. I love verse 22. He turned and seeing her. He sees her. He cares about her. He wants a relationship. And he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Jesus is all about relationship. I do wonder, though, how many of us are tempted toward approaching him as if he were a customer service representative. We want things fixed, but we're not really interested in fellowship or relationship. Jesus calls these men into relationship with himself. And he also gives them an opportunity to confess their faith. Remember, he's he's trying to figure out what exactly it is they believe. He says, do you believe that I can do this? And they tell him, yes, Lord. This isn't so different to what we do in membership interviews when someone is joining the church. We, We want to examine what it is exactly someone believes. Our questions are a little bit more complicated than this, as more has been revealed. But they're not all that complicated. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Can you affirm the Apostles' Creed? We want to make sure that those who we welcome into the church, who we affirm as bearing the name of God, as part of God's people, believe basic Christian doctrine. We want to ask, can you affirm the words of the Apostles' Creed, which says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, that's universal, church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We we want to make sure that those who are following Christ are following the Christ of the Bible and not a Jesus of their own imagination. Likewise, Jesus here wants to make sure that these blind men have faith in him. He's examining what they believe. And so he asks them, do you think I'm able, do you think I have the power to give you sight? And they answer, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. Jesus says, you believe it, 
you have received it. Now, he's not just commending their faith in and of itself. We've talked about this recently since Matthew is exploring the idea of faith throughout these chapters. He's not saying it's, it's great that you have faith in faith. Your faith, ultimately, it's only as good as what it's in. And so we've said if you have faith in a bad football team to make the playoffs, it's probably going to be disappointed. If you have faith that you can breathe underwater, uh, you might drown. If you have faith that you can leap from a tall building and fly, you might sustain some injuries. On the other hand, if you got in your car and you drove here this morning and you had the faith that it could take you from point A to point B, your faith was well-placed. If you had faith that the pew upon which you sit would be able to hold up your weight, well, your faith has been rewarded. The object of your faith was able to fulfill the promise that you believed it would be able to keep. It is not, the Bible's not concerned so much with how much faith you have or how strong your faith is. It's concerned with where your faith is. We've talked about it like you wanting to go skiing. You don't ski on an ice pond, but skating, ice skating on an ice pond, and you're not sure if the ice can hold you up and you throw the rock out and the cracks splinter. You send your least favorite kid out, you know, walk around a little bit, wait to see if they get wet or not. And then eventually you all get out there together and you can do some ice skating. But the ice's ability to, to hold everyone up is not dependent upon the weight of your faith, but the integrity of the ice. Faith is not some energy or mystic source that we, we sort of harness in ourselves so that we can produce the results that we want. But Christian faith is, and I love the way the, the 1689 and Westminster put it, is a reliance and resting upon Christ for our salvation. It is a relying and resting on Christ. Faith is not meritorious, it is instrumental. It is the instrument through which we receive the grace of God, not the means by which we earn anything for ourselves. Family and I went to the North Carolina State Fair this year. Always great. I had faith that the funnel cake and the fried cheese would be delicious. It paid off. I did not have so much faith in the Ferris wheel. It looked a little rickety to me. And yet, not betraying my fear of heights to anyone, and especially my wife, I got on the Ferris wheel with my children and her sister. And you know the thing about Ferris wheels, what they do is, is when you get to the top, they actually stop spinning. And there's that little, you, know, you feel the whole thing rock. And I, you know, in my head internally, I'm looking around going, you know, I don't know if that pin quite looks like it's going to hold. We, I'm, we might fall. You know, you've got anxiety start going a little bit. I'm like, I hope they, they get us down soon. I'm, I'm, all right, I, I can see I've had the Ferris wheel experience. I'm ready to be done. At that moment when my faith is small, weak, not very much, the Ferris wheel remains the same. I don't fall to my death. Because the Ferris wheel's ability to hold me up is not dependent on me. It's dependent on its own strength and integrity. Likewise, friends, Christ's ability to hold you in his hands, to keep you as his own, to fulfill his purposes in your life according to the counsel of his will is not dependent on how much faith you have. If your faith is in him, you are on firm footing. Because though you are weak, he is strong. Faith relies on God, not on itself. 
So many will wrongly appropriate verse 29, according to your faith, be it done to you, as if it is about proportion rather than place. So the idea is, you will receive a healing that is commensurate or consistent with how much you believe. You know, that reading is, is, is popular, but it's preposterous, the idea. Uh, one of these blind men, he's like, well, he's got a lot of faith, so he's going to have you know, 20-20 vision. Uh, the other guy, he's got 2100. <laughs> didn't believe enough. It's not the picture that the Bible gives us. And yet we have to take some time to, to address this false teaching because it is so widespread. It usually flies under the banner of what we have called the, the prosperity gospel. And this is poison. If you eat of its fruits, you will find yourself spiritually sick. Prosperity gospel says something like this. Material wealth and health are signs of God's favor in your life and are obtained and secured by the means of positive thinking, giving, and strong faith. And so how much prosperity you have in life is understood to be directly connected to how much faith you have. This is not the Bible's teaching. It is undone quickly when we simply read the Bible. We find the most faithful of God's servants from cover to cover, killed, rejected, all the disciples, terrible deaths. Look at Paul's afflictions through the book of Acts. His request to have a, a thorn taken from his side, not granted. You look at the words of Jesus, just in verse 24 here. I mean, just around the corner, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. And where did the master go? but to crucifixion, to die for the sins of all who had put their faith in him. He, he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The idea that all of God's rewards for faith come to us right now is wrong. Our ultimate reward, our ultimate inheritance is in heaven, kept for us, undefiled and un touchable. Friends, it is not always God's will to heal. Does God do miracles? Yes and amen. Is it always his will to do whatever miracle you might want him to do? No. And it is wicked to suggest otherwise. It is harmful. I think the most heart-wrenching situation where, where I saw this take place happened in December of 2019. Bethel Church in, I believe California is where they're located, they have a belief that it is always God's will to heal, but he will only heal if there is enough faith to cause that to happen. And so he wants to heal everybody, but the reason he doesn't is they, people just don't have enough faith. One of their members Toddlers, a two-year-old two girl, passed away suddenly and unexpectedly. And instead of mourning properly, looking to Christ, and looking for the new heavens and the new earth, they decided not to have a funeral, but to encourage the whole church to pray and cry out to God for the girl's resurrection from the dead. 
And so they left her unburied for a week. And then, when all of their crying out didn't result in resurrection, there was all kinds of confusion. A blaming of God. How could he do this? It's always his will to heal. But the problem then is, well, we're not believing enough. You see how that just piles up sorrow upon sorrow, especially on the shoulders of the parents? Think about how this theology would impact anyone you know who is suffering from a chronic illness. Well, you know, God would heal you, but you don't believe enough. That's actually the problem. Or people who are poor. You know, you, you could have more wealth, but the reason you're poor, you're not trusting God enough. This is wicked theology. God does not always desire to heal. Otherwise, there would be no suffering in the world. Sometimes he desires to send his son to a cross so that he might accomplish the salvation of the world. God brings glory out of suffering. His ways are higher than our ways. His ways are mysterious sometimes. We don't always know why, but we always know who. We know who he is. And so like those blind men, when we can't see why God is doing what he is doing, we, we can keep following. We can keep walking by faith because we know who we have trusted. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing so. So, first application from this. It's a negative one, but I feel like we have to make it because this teaching is so widespread is this. Do not believe that your faith merits or obligates God to work in a particular way. It's not the amount of your faith that saves you it is the object of your faith. Do not concern yourself so much with how strong your faith is or where, or, or yeah, not, how, not how strong your faith is or how much faith you have, but where your faith is. Who is your faith in? And when suffering comes, and it will come, do not despair. Keep trusting. Secondly, and this is the flip side, and I actually think more of the thrust here of what we should learn from the passage, is that we should ask God for things. Our Heavenly Father gives to us every good and perfect gift. He still loves to bless His children. We ought to come before Him boldly and regularly and ask Him for things. He loves to hear from us. And like a good parent, he will sometimes tell us no because he knows what's best for us. And other times, he will give us really good things. Sometimes in the evenings, my kids will be like, Dad, you know, why didn't we do this today? Why didn't we have ice cream today? And sometimes I'll just tell them, you have not because you ask not. Do not be afraid to ask God for things. He is able and often willing. You can trust that he always works for your good, even when you are blind to his purposes. The eyes of these men are opened, and Jesus strangely, immediately gives them that warning we already spoke about earlier. See that no one knows about it. And then what do they immediately do? Jesus has healed them. They've come to him in faith. They believe he's the son of David, the king of the world. Verse 31. But they went away 
and spread his fame through all the district. Disobedience. We believe your God. We believe your king. We believe you have the power to open our eyes. But we're not going to do what you say. Sin is so stupid. It's so irrational. And yet we find ourselves there in verse 31. It is ironic, isn't it? Jesus asks them to, hey, keep quiet. And I don't think he means, hey, you know, when you go home tonight, don't tell people that you can see. He deliberately means don't spread this out so that everybody's looking for the Messiah with a fever pitch. It's, it's ironic that Jesus asks them to stay silent and they're like, we can't stay quiet. We have this joy. We were blind, but now we, we see the Messiah is here. And yet we have a different command that we disobey. So it's opposite, right? We are to proclaim Christ and him crucified. We are to make disciples of all nations. And yet we disobey by keeping our mouths shut. I don't want to commend the disobedience of these men to you. But I do want to encourage us to pick up their joy. We who were dead and have been made alive in Christ should be joyful. We who were lost but are now found should be filled with delight before God. We who were blind, but now see, should be characterized by joy. No one should have to twist our arms to have us singing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I'm found. Was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I messed up the hook there. You all know it, though. You were with me. We want to be joyful people. But friends, don't grow bored with the gospel. Don't ever get over the truth that if you're a Christian, if you have repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, it's true that he died for you. That Christmas was for you. That God took on flesh so that he could die for you, so that you could be saved. You deserved hell. You deserved the wrath of God forever. And he gave you his loving kindness. All that in Romans 5, when we were his enemies, he died for us. Do not let the color of the blood-soaked cross become dull in your eyes. Let not the splendor of the empty tomb cease to dazzle you. Let not your heart grow cold. You are alive. Be joyful. Spread Jesus' fame. Sometimes we become so obsessed with our own faith, we forget that faith is about receiving from God about relationship with God. So our faith is it's just it's like the window through which we see Jesus. It's not there for us to be obsessed with. It's there as the mechanism through which we receive from Christ, the, the mechanism through which we view Christ. Sort of like sometimes I wake up in the morning, well, every day I wake up in the morning, but, but sometimes when I wake up, there will be a nice little sunrise over here just come cresting over the mountains and you'll get those morning sunrise colors, you know, the, the pinks and the oranges and a little bit of mist going up. And I'll look out and I'll go, wow, praise God. And then when I turn to my kids and say, hey, come, come look at this. Come look at this. It's beautiful. I don't tell them 
this window that I'm looking through. Isn't it amazing? We can see right through it to the sunrise. The window's there. It's important. Without it, we couldn't see. But it's just the means by which we see. Friends, let us not tie our joy to our feelings of faithfulness. Let us tie our joy to the Christ our faith enables us to see no matter how weak it is. They spread Jesus' fame. And then as soon as they leave, the turnstile of the doctor's office turns and the next patient comes in. Verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. A man, and, and the word here in Greek means both deaf and mute. He's probably mute because he can't hear. He's a deaf mute, and he's a deaf mute because he is demon oppressed. He's brought to Jesus. And Jesus makes him well. It's another sort of reminder of our ability to bring others before God in prayer and in faith. Think of the paralytic who's healed because his friends brought him to Jesus. Let's remember to bring others to our Lord, to pray for our children and our parents and our friends. Let us remember to invite people here that they might encounter the word. Still, Matthew doesn't give us hardly any details here. Brought in, made well, he's out. No conversation. And, and the reason is he's taking that spotlight and he's putting it directly on Jesus. He wants us to, he wants to magnify Jesus' power and authority. Wants to help us understand that Jesus is the Messiah King. He's been building this argument since verse 1 of chapter 1. You thought you were going to get out of context today, but I'm about to bring it to you again. But I want, to, want, want you to know, I, I think if, if Matthew were a psalm, there would be a little selah after verse 34. Okay? And I'm going to, get, I'm going to explain that, I hope, in a few minutes. Because he wants us to think about what he is claiming. He sort of built all of his argument to this juncture. And so he's, he started out, he says, Jesus is the Messiah King. He's the son of David who brings the blessing of Abraham to the world. He's got the right pedigree to be the king. He's qualified. Indeed, he fulfills the right prophecies. He's conceived in the womb of a virgin. He's born in the town of Bethlehem. In his life, he reenacts the geographical movements of Israel, and he functions as a new Moses. His life is threatened as a child. He has to leave and flee from a murderous king. He finds himself in Egypt. He comes out of Egypt, passes through the waters of baptism, into the wilderness where he is tested and tried, and eventually he comes to a mountain where God's word is spoken. Jesus has the credentials of a king. He has the right pedigree, he fulfills the right prophecies, and of course he has the right endorsements. In chapter 3, he is baptized, and at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends and rests on him, anointing him as king. And the Father's voice rings out, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Matthew is telling us, he's the king, he's the king, he's the king. And Watch this, he looks like a king and exercises the authority of a king. He teaches with authority in the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of chapter 7, when he is done preaching, what do the people say? Chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. And then we see his authority on display in chapters 8 and 9 as he doesn't just exercise the authority of words, 
but with his works. He is healing. And all of the healings have led to this healing of the blind men and of the deaf mute. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the Messiah who unravels the curse of sin. He's shown us Jesus as a suffering servant, and now he's, he's ringing that messianic bell at, at a pitch that just makes our ears almost bleed. Well, what, are you, what are you talking about? You're saying that he's been building his argument to this miracle. He makes, makes the blind to see, but didn't he just raise someone from the dead in the previous verse? Right, that, that seems more miraculous than giving the blind their sight. Yeah, I, that's true. However, other people in Scripture have done that. Elijah and Elisha both raise the dead. In fact, other prophets throughout Israel's history do a lot of the things that Jesus does in terms of the miraculous through prayer. But do you know what no one in Scripture but God does? Open the eyes of the blind. The Bible says God gives sight to the blind. Exodus 4.11 asks... Who gives men sight or removes it and answers, Is it not I, the Lord? Psalm 146, verse 8 declares, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And when John is curious if Jesus really is the Messiah, he's having his doubts because he's in prison and he was expecting Rome to be overthrown. He's expecting to be free from prison. He says this, chapter 11, verse 2, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Listen to what Jesus says. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news reached, preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus says, I'm not quite what you expected, but I am the one who is to come. I am the Messiah. I am the one who is fulfilling Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Jesus is the one who was to come. He's unraveling the curse. And the crowds are amazed. And yet, seeing is not believing. Verse 34, But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Here's where I would put the Selah, if, if Matthew would let me. You see, he's built the case for who Jesus is. The Pharisees witness who Jesus is. No one is denying Jesus' authority. He's got the power. And yet, they explain it away by attributing his power to demons. Sometimes you might hear an unbeliever say to you, I would believe in Jesus if I could have been there and saw what everybody saw. You know, if I could see, then I would believe. This text says, no, you would not. The Pharisees saw and did not believe. The reason for 
unbelief. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of reason. It's always the same. Men and women want to be God in their own life. That's what sin is. It's the de-godding of God. It's saying, I'm going to rule myself and you are not going to rule me. And if Jesus really is the king, that means a lot of changes for the Pharisees. It means a lot of changes for any who would confess him as king and submit to him as sovereign ruler. If Jesus is king, it means I'm not. And people really love ruling themselves. And so reject Jesus Jesus for all sorts of reasons. Where your heart is, there your argument will be also. And if your heart is set on sin and against God, you will find arguments to support that. Just like the Pharisees. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Selah. So here's, here's what Matthew has done. He's shown us Jesus, and he's shown us the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus. And that opposition is going to grow now all the way to the cross. And Matthew is asking us, behold, he's saying, behold the man. How will you respond to him? Will you simply be amazed? Nothing will come of it. Go to church pretty regularly, but not ever be changed. Never kneel before him. Will you, like the Pharisees, trust in your own righteousness and reject him for any number of reasons? Or will you, like the blind men, cry out to him in faith? Like the leper, come to him and say, you can make me well. Like the centurion and the synagogue ruler, kneel down before him and ask for resurrection. Friends, are your eyes opened? Cry out to Jesus in faith, and he will give you sight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, your mercy. We thank you that you have given to us the gift of faith by which, through which, we take hold of eternal life and enjoy your your graciousness and your love. We thank you that though we were dead in our sins, because of the great love with which you have loved us, you have made us alive together with Christ. We give you praise and glory and honor by your Holy Spirit. Through the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.